This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. We want to create something that makes people feel a lot, makes people feel like it's a lot different than what they expected from a tuxedo rental company. And we want to generate press around this. Because if we can kind of drive this engine of word of mouth through press um, and through, uh, I would just say, like the brand image we create, and then we can back it up with a good experience and a tuxedo rental that they didn't expect or is just like a lot better than they had done in the past, we felt like people would just tell other people about it. And that is exactly actually what ended up happening. We got some press, like we were very fortunate to be covered in GQ and the Wall Street Journal and some other places. We didn't have that many suits. So pretty quickly, it turned into like a long wait list for our service. Um, And, you know, a wait list is kind of like, I think a really good go out and raise venture money because you're basically using the money to fulfill demand, not create demand. Um, and you know, demand is like for a company at that stage, it's the biggest risk because people don't know if you have product market fit or if other people are going to want the service. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the consumer VC podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at the consumer VC, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Andrew Blackman, who is the co-founder and CEO of The Black Tux. The Black Tux is reinventing formal wear. They design and manufacture modern suits and tuxedos for rent or for keeps. We discuss why Andrew decided to start a D2C rentals tuxedo business in the first place, how he thinks about size, fit, what standardized versus customization, and the different growth avenues that they've experienced over the past few years. And what I thought was really interesting, how they're influenced by fashion trends, or if they're influenced by fashion trends when it comes to design, and much more. Without further ado, here's Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. So I want to start from the very beginning. Tuxedos. Why build a tuxedo business and what was kind of like the origin story of the Black Tux? Yeah, so it's a good question um, because most people don't look at tuxedos or tuxedo rentals in particular and think that's the most interesting business. Uh, You know, it really came from a need that my co-founder and I identified when we were younger and we were going to a bunch of weddings. Um, We both got married ourselves and going to proms and we just realized 
tuxedo rentals are kind of a bad experience. Like there's a negative stigma in the industry or there was at the time. Uh, most people believed that if you rented, you were going to end up with something that had like a really baggy fit um, and didn't, you know, essentially fit or look great for what's usually a really important day. And so the idea and the reason we wanted to do this is really just we were the consumer and we didn't like what the current incumbents were offering. So we wanted to start something different and better. And so we conceived of this idea. So when you began to thought think of this idea, how did you think through it? Because um, and what and, and what's kind of the origin story there with like Black Tux in terms of what the first steps that, that you and your co-founder took? Yeah, so so we both had literally no experience in any industry that was relevant, which actually I think helped us out a little bit because we were somewhat naive and we didn't look at things that most people would look at as a massive challenge and think they were a challenge just because we didn't even know at that point. So for us, the first step was actually kind of different than what I see most entrepreneurs doing. We wrote a business plan and it was like 40 pages long with like, here's the idea, here's the brand, here's what we think the financial projections could look like. I mean, of course, the financial projections were just so wildly off, but um, everything else was kind of like what we ended up doing. We identified the problem. We thought about how we would, you know, create a more or create a suit or tuxedo that people want to rent. That would be more like something you buy for a higher price. Um, we thought a lot about the brand in that business plan. We thought a lot about how we would do the operations and the shipping and how we would go to market and things like that. So I think it was like, we had never started a business before. We were both about 26. We had just come out of business school and just had no experience. So we're like, okay, the only way people are going to take us seriously is if we really do a lot of research into this market and put together something like normal, um, which I think people found funny. I think most people, when we took it to them, when we were trying to raise capital, were like, you know, where's your 10 page slide deck? Like, what is this? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad we did it because it helped us to think through all the potential issues and really think about like what we wanted to do um, with the business. In that first round of funding, were you trying to raise prior to actually building, um, um, having um, the brand launch? Yeah. So the first round of funding is actually kind of an interesting story for us. The first, first round was just myself, my co-founder, our families, you know, were lucky to give us a little bit of money to get this thing off the ground. And then some like family friends. So your typical friends and family round. Uh, but after we did that, we, because we had no experience, there were a bunch of startup accelerators in LA where we started the company. And, you know, we talked to a bunch of them and one of them that we really liked, we ended up joining, which is a thing called Mucker Labs, which is now Mucker Capital which are early stage investors who I really, really think highly of. And so we joined that. And when we joined that, we spent like a year putting together the site, the product, everything like that. And they had a demo day. And when we did the demo day, we got a bunch of investors who were interested in like doing around before we actually took the company to market. So we, we were like, okay, let's talk to all these investors. They're all like brand names, Silicon Valley. And almost all of them ended up saying no at the beginning because it was like we had no traction. Um, everyone, I think, liked the idea, but they were like, you know, it probably makes sense for you guys to put it out in the marketplace, see if you get some traction before we invest behind it, um, which was actually at the time, like really disappointing to us. Um, we were bummed because we're like, we have meetings with all these really interesting and successful people. And most of them are saying no. The good thing is the no was kind of like a, come back later. No, not a, Hey, we never want to do this deal. And so 
we ended up launching the company in June of 2013. Um, I think this kind of potential fundraise like happened two or three months before that, uh, or I should say failed fundraise. And then after June, we got a lot of traction on the business. And so we went out that fall um, and did our first angel or first like seed round, which is what they were calling it at the time. And, uh, you know, we were lucky to do that with a bunch of really great investors from mostly San Francisco, New York. So um, from a cash flow perspective, you were still able to launch. You didn't actually need the capital per se to actually launch. Um, so which was a good thing, um, obviously. Yeah, we had, we had enough just from that small friends and family round to like buy suits, tuxedos, you know, put together a website, get a little tiny warehouse in Santa Monica, et cetera. Can you run through me like what the operations were? Um, I know you just kind of like said it in like for like two seconds, but details in terms of like how you actually, like, where you kind of source um, the tuxedos, how you thought about like warehousing and 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 overall like what like the, the uh, launch strategy was? Yeah. So I will say first, the operations of this business are challenging and we were almost like hit with a brick when we realized how hard it is to run this business in the early stage. So it was myself, my co-founder, Patrick, and we had a few other people involved. And then we brought on another person who had a lot of experience, like kind of operating early stage startups. So essentially the business has to ship out all the goods to the customer and then receive them back. And in between those two things, it has to dry clean, tailor, and like basically get paid to give to the next person. Um, that's It's really in its essence, like a big dry cleaning and kind of tailoring, cobbling business. And so we had a space in Santa Monica that was kind of off of a back alley. And we just had, maybe it was like 2000 square feet. We put in some racking and we would just do all these things ourselves. Um, like my co-founder Patrick was responsible for kind of sourcing and finding the goods. And so, you know, we were traveling all over the place to figure out how to manufacture what we felt was like a high quality tuxedo that could also withstand multiple dry cleanings. Um, so it could be rented. The other guy we brought on, Mike, he would really focus on how do we operate this business? Um, like, how are we tracking the inventory? What technology are we using? There was some off-the-shelf technology that we could use in the early days um, that didn't scale but worked for that phase. Um, and then I was focused a little bit more on how do we create the brand, get it out in the marketplace, in the ecosystem. And then I was doing a lot of our customer service as well, um, just taking phone calls, answering emails. Etc. And then we had like a few kind of first and second employees um, who also helped us just with any tasks. So it was like the most fun and most hectic time, but really just figuring out everything on the go. All of us would wash and clean and polish shoes ourselves. It was like, you know, we really did everything we could just to kind of prove that the concept would work. Can you, can you also speak to a little bit about how you thought around how many different types of sizes maybe of tuxedos to actually carry because i think as we began this conversation we talked about the um um what you know like the the the, the bad process you know originally when it comes to tuxedos you might get a, a tuxedo that might be too big too small it's kind of a customized piece of apparel and that's what i i would imagine is quite challenging because um because you kind of want that customization but from a business side since your rentals these tuxedos are, are, are going to be worn by multiple people instead of by only one person um that also i'd imagine is quite challenging to kind of balance that customization with standardization yeah absolutely so that was a huge challenge in the early days because statistically to like cover everyone's size without needing to do a lot of tailoring you have to carry quite a few different sizes basically every size in a short, regular, extra short, 
long, extra long. Sorry, I went in a funny order there, but I think you get it. Um, and so the the amount of sizes for every style, if you want to statistically be able to serve everyone in a wedding party, is extremely high. We couldn't even do that at the beginning days, so we had to do quite a bit of tailoring to take garments, make them fit somebody, um, and then you know kind of tailor them to fit somebody else afterwards, which was cumbersome on the business. In terms of like figuring out what that size distribution looked like, it was hard and we got it way wrong. And I'll tell a funny story about that. So at the beginning, we basically got a data set from the US government um, who, it's a public data set, who had all these measurements on people who were essentially joining the army, um, who are predominantly male. And so we could look at that data set and we could basically create our own algorithm that says, if somebody is this height and weight, based on this data, what do we think their suit size is going to be? Because they had suit sizing as part of that. So we thought, great, this is a really interesting data set. Hopefully it's representative of our customer. Um, we have our first kind of orders that we're sending out. I still remember the name of the person that we were sending the first orders to because we're like, we're just going to do one wedding party the first weekend and make sure it works. Um, and this person called me on the customer care line and just basically said, hey, man, I'm bummed about this, but literally nothing fits. Sent us photos, like the jackets were past the person's hand. And so Patrick and I, we were like, you know, yeah, shed a tear because this was so disappointing. And we had at that point invested so much time and um, energy and effort into this business. And so we dug in, I mean, we fixed that issue. We, we ended up buying the sky suits, sending him chain, just making sure he was totally taken care of for his wedding. But uh, we dug into the algorithm and realized two things. One, that this data set was not representative of most people because somebody joining the army is like has a much different build than the average population of the US. And then two, our quote unquote algorithm that we created in Excel was over predicting people's size by like two standard deviations. So we basically, it was a solvable problem, but it showed us really early, like two of the hardest things in this business, one are gonna be fit and then two is gonna be operations. Um, and those kind of go hand in hand, like operating the business to get people the best fit was going to be challenging. Luckily, we fixed the issues with the algorithm. Um, we got a better data set. And now we have our own data set, of course, because we've served close to 2 million customers to this day. Um, so now we can predict someone's size really well. Um, but in the early days, it was it was pretty challenging. Um, and it was like a lot of trial and error to figure it out. Um, so it's interesting kind of how, um, how, uh, the black tux has evolved, as you said, maybe, um, as you said, like in your, um, using, first of all, like an external data set, and then you're able to, once you had like two, about 2 million customers or what have you to use your own data set and actually own that um, entire process when it comes to fit and size, how still like backing up in the early days, how did you approach though? Like the launch, what were kind of some of the key maybe drivers or levers that you're able to pull that you said that you kind of come out, came out pretty fast and then became um, attractive to investors. Talk to me a little bit about like that experience. Yeah. So because we were starting a brand and one of the biggest parts of this opportunity that we saw was the brand experience. If you look at the market before we launched, it was mainly like big box retail stores and local mom and pop shops, both of which didn't focus on the brand that much. So for us, we actually spent a long time before launch um, figuring out the right product and the right sort of like brand and aesthetic and way to talk to the customer. Like I really felt like, hey, if we create an emotional connection with the customer, people will spread this word of mouth because it's a very word of mouth type of business, given it's catering to weddings, proms, things like that. 
So we took that mentality into our launch and said, hey, look, we don't want to do a ton of marketing. We want to create something that makes people feel a lot, makes people feel like it's a lot different than what they expected from a tuxedo rental company. And we want to generate press around this because if we can kind of drive this engine of word of mouth through press um, and through, uh, I would just say, like the brand image we create, and then we can back it up with a good experience and a tuxedo rental that they didn't expect or is just like a lot better than they had done in the past. We felt like people would just tell other people about it. And that is exactly actually what ended up happening. We got some press, like we were very fortunate to be covered in GQ and the Wall Street Journal and some other places. We didn't have that many suits. So pretty quickly, it turned into like a long wait list for our service. Um, and, you know, a wait list is kind of like, I think, a really good to go out and raise venture money because you're basically using the money to fulfill demand, not create demand. Um, and, you know, demand is like for a company at that stage, it's the biggest risk because people don't know if you have product market fit or if other people are going to want the service. So that was our approach. And we didn't actually spend any money on marketing for like the first two or three years in the business. Uh, it was really just like trying to keep up with the demand to spread word of mouth pretty quickly. Wow. Well, that's awesome that you didn't have to spend um, anything on marketing for the first two, three years. Um and I mean, because it's it, it is so interesting. I mean, you're, during that time, right? I'd imagine it's like 2013, 2014. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Where like you know, um, like you know, a DTC brand, online brands were were kind of all the rage, and also spending you know a ton of marketing typically. Um, so that's 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 incredible. That 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 kind of of course you were you you were growing. It seems you know pretty rapidly, but didn't have to actually spend money on marketing. That's that's great. Yeah, we got lucky. There's like some inherent things in the business, like essentially a bride and groom create an order for themselves and on average five groomsmen. And then those people could end up getting married or end up being in another wedding. So there's like actually some natural virality to the business, which helps it as well. Yeah, that's that, that's interesting. I was interviewing a founder um, that was that that was building in the baby category and same same kind of thing because a lot of those, um, a lot of their products gets on, you know, gift re registry, obviously different, but like gets on like gift re registries. And so usually that they're actually gifted products um, uh, to people that, you know, are about to um, have a child. And, but, and then what, what, what tends to happen is when then that person ends up having a child, then they actually are like, oh, well, this brand. So yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. Your operations did it all change? Like, did did you eventually find yourselves, or or did it lead to? I know you were you were buying like the tuxedos um, um, initially. Did you ever think to yourself, like, okay, does it make sense for us to maybe own our our manufacturing more, or or always kind of using third parties? So we're pretty vertically integrated. So when we say we're buying our own inventory, we're actually designing and manufacturing everything with a third party partner. So we don't like manufacture it in house, but We'll take the designs um, and we'll go as far as like working with a wool mill directly to weave the fabric that we want for our suits and tuxedos, bringing that wool then to the cut and sew facility to have them cut and sew them in the designs that we like. So I don't think it makes sense for us to own those parts of it because those are pretty sophisticated businesses to like make wool and do a cut and sew. So that doesn't make sense, but I think we're pretty vertically integrated in that uh, we own a lot of that process. Cool. No, got it. Got it. Um, and you know, like talk to me a little bit about like, like the user experience and in terms of like when you were 
getting better. Um, I know you originally talking about kind of this fit, uh, the fit technology that, um, that, that you had developed. Um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, about from the user experience, like what, um, what measurements, um, like would you collect in order for, for it to, to fit just right? Originally we took and collected a lot more measurements. Um, like, the way that people have always been able to sort of submit their sizes to us is either they go to one of our locations, which is pretty easy to get measured, and we put that into our system, or they do it themselves. Doing it themselves, we used to send them a tape measure. I, I oddly have one in my hand right now. We'd send them a tape measure and instruct them, like usually a friend or significant other or something, like what measurements to take and then give it to us. Um and along with that, they would give us like height, weight, um, some questions about their body type, age, where they live in the U.S., things like that. And so as time went on, we actually found that the latter of those questions were more um, statistically significant in the predictability of what someone would wear than the measurements that they were taking with a measuring tape. And there were a few reasons for that. One, there's a lot of human error with the tape. Um as much as you want to instruct someone to do it, they're probably going to breeze through it and do it the way they want to. And it often is incorrect, but two, like height, weight, and the questions that we ask about body type are, are very predictive in what suit size somebody is going to wear. Um, and so over time we've pared back the amount of information we need from the customer in order to, you know, fit them with a high accuracy. No, that's great. That's great. That's, that is like pretty interesting. As you say, move kind of, um, having, first of all, it'd be easier on the customers since they don't actually need to actually take their own measurements and what have you. And actually, and actually taking less data is actually more vital for you than what you originally were doing. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. We, we thought at the beginning, like we wanted to take all this information because people didn't trust us yet. We were a new brand. This is an important moment in your life. There has to be trust. We didn't have all these partnerships with like Nordstrom and other good brands. Um, and so part of like collecting a lot of information was to generate trust. Now that I think we have more trust and more people know about us in the marketplace, it's a little bit more about making it easy for the customer. Um, and then the other side of fit is also making sure that there are a lot of uh, safety nets in place in case something doesn't fit. So we ship it so the garment arrives 10 days prior to their event, so they have enough time to try it on. If anything doesn't fit, we'll overnight them a replacement item for free. Um, we allow them to tailor the garments. And so we kind of worked on both ends of this. Like, how do we get the most likely fit on the first delivery? But then because everyone's body is different or everyone's preference is also different, um, we wanted to make sure that there was a big enough window to make sure that somebody had a good fit um, for their event. That's awesome. Um, and and how did you think about um, where these, where your showrooms would be um, uh, would actually be located in terms of like what the type of partnerships would be, or if it would be the its own retail, um, standalone. It it happened kind of naturally. So, like a lot of other, I think DTC companies, we opened up a little space in our office in Santa Monica. Took appointments. We realized like, hey, these appointments converted a high rate. People liked the experience. They were often overbooked. So we opened an actual store in Santa Monica. And then we opened one in New York and then Chicago, Dallas, San Francisco, a bunch of places. And they all were performing and continue to perform really well. Um, but then we had the opportunity to, instead of scaling those kind of 
or and ourselves to partner with Nordstrom where we have stores within a store. Um, so it's a pretty similar experience where you go into Nordstrom, you get fitted, and then we still ship everything to you. But we have almost 30 of those. So those were just easier to scale more quickly. And Nordstrom is a great partner because they have a, a good brand. They're known for customer service, which is something that's really important in our industry. Um, so I think that opportunity uh, was just one that we kind of had always dreamed of. So when it came to fruition, we wanted to take that. I think as we go forward, we'll open more Nordstrom and more of our own stores because um, both really work with the model. Got it. No, that's um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I imagine too, probably you're getting, um, Nordstrom's also getting like more as well traffic from from you all too, which is obviously very complimentary uh, to, to their store. Yeah, exactly. Like we're sending all the volume to there. People aren't usually walking through Nordstrom and saying, oh, I need a tuxedo rental. It's more they're looking for a suit or tux rental they want to try something on, on in store and then we kind of book the appointment at Nordstrom. So a lot of the customers are new customers to Nordstrom. Um, they're often making purchases of other things at Nordstrom after the appointment. So it really is like a perfectly balanced partnership between the two companies. And the tuxedo market, is it one that's pretty cyclical? Um, and more so, I would, I would presume more so like summers and spring, um, and maybe fall and, and not maybe not as much winter or is it pretty much year round pretty busy? No, it, it it's definitely has a uh, seasonal element to it. So there are proms that kind of begin, call it March, April, and then there's spring weddings that um, take up that same time period. The bulk of the uh, business is in the fall wedding season. So really August until October. October is to most people surprise, the biggest month for weddings in the U.S. almost every year. Um, there's a little bit of a downtrend in November. December is a solid month, just given there's like a bunch of New Year's events and black tie um, occasions. And then Q1 is really the seasonal low point for the business. And, you know, because we like um, like I've, I've interviewed like a couple like athlete athleisure uh, wear brands. And it seems like um, and as well, just think, give him like my own taste when it comes to um, to what I wear. I feel like the world is kind of becoming a lot more casual, maybe also due, due to COVID, um, uh, the world is kind of becoming more, more casual. Seems like though on the tuxedo side, since this is for weddings and those are still formal um, and kind of these uh, special events, formal, uh, uh, f- for- formal occasions. Um, but how... How do you kind of think about black tie, black tux, excuse me, moving forward um, today, given that there's been a like been quite a big change when it comes to what people wear in the past, you know, 10 to 10 to uh, 20 years, especially in formal wear? Yeah, that's a good question. So we definitely see casual versus formal ebbing and flowing over like the last hundred years. Um, You know, it goes back and forth. The tide changes and we're definitely in a period of more casualization. I think you're right. During and post COVID, when most people are working at home, they want to wear like, you know, sweatpants and things like that. My guess is that will change. Who knows when? But our business is luckily focused on events. And because we're so focused on events like weddings, proms, quinceanera, like black tie, New Year's parties, those can become more casual. Sometimes a wedding can become more casual. But even if it's more casual, a lot of people are wanting to rent or buy and are wanting the groomsmen in the wedding party to look uniform. Um, so they need to go to somewhere to do this. So we're a little bit more um, resistant to, I think, some of those changes than most people would guess. 
what we have seen since the beginning, the share of or the split of suits rented versus tux rented used to be heavily favored tux. And then it went in the suiting direction as things have become more casual, like tan suit, gray suit, blue suit. But interestingly, this year, we're seeing that reverse and we're seeing things move more towards the tux um, rental rather than suit. So I think we're seeing some, at least in our data, some early indications that uh, people want to get dressed up and get out, at least for formal occasions, their everyday life. It still seems pretty casual to me, um, but people are like enjoying, I think, post-COVID, like putting on something that is more formal and more interesting for at least for a wedding party. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems to me like 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 uh, the black toxins is kind of like insulated, which is great um, from in terms of what the actual overall trend would be, whether it's, you know, going more casual or going more formal, because you look at prom pictures like they look they look very similar now, probably than they did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago in terms of what, you know, the uh, the guy was wearing. Right. So. um um, and so that doesn't change. And, and, I, and I think, and, and as you say, like, it just means that um, whether it's a suit or whether it's renting a suit or whether it's renting a tux, you know, it just is make sure on your end, you have enough variety that can actually still capture that consumer. Uh, but, it, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it, it's all still formal wear. It's all something that, that they would actually, that, that, that they actually do want to rent. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We're insulated. I think that's one thing that really attracted us to this business too starting like a fashion brand can be so challenging because trends change. And like every brand that we're familiar with has seen an ebb and flow in their business, like Levi's, for instance. It's like, you know, the tide changes based on what's popular and what people like. We looked at this category and we're like, hey, there's been kind of like one major player in this space who has owned out of the market for a really long time. And from our perspective, they didn't have a great brand or great customer service and so but they still owned the category and so that was really interesting to us given that styles don't change there's less fashion risk um so i think you're totally right it's kind of like something that we were really attracted to in this industry like you can if you can take the market lead position you can stay there for a really long time in a pretty profitable industry yeah, it's a funny, it's like, um, it's really interesting, as you say, because um, obviously, it's a fashion company. But at the same time, you aren't, you, you are kind of isolated from the actual fashion trend. So you don't constantly need to be innovating and innovating on product. Um, more so, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong on here, probably the trends are actually a bit like lag behind others, where you see a suit or a type that, that that's in style, maybe then on the rental side will become in style in the next like two, three years, right? Um uh, so it's, it's, and, and then you have like the time to actually adjust to that trend just to make sure that you have, um, a particular suit or a particular tuxedo that's, that's in that style, um, and, and can serve that customer. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's just, there's just less risk in merchandising and planning, um, than most businesses. And so it's a little easier. It seemed like when you first started, you were kind of off to a fast start. Um, and you're able then to raise money, which congratulations. Um, I know that you've now raised kind of several fundraising rounds, um, uh, 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 since, which is great. Um, how did you almost think about how as well did you think, cause you've raised quite a bit of money. How did you think about, um, about fundraising in your perspective? Um, when it, when the time was right to raise how much to raise, um, in, in different kind of phases of your business and, and, and the overall growth projections. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, so it was probably different for each round. Uh, I would say the earlier rounds, it's a little bit more like 
supply and demand. How much can you raise and how much is the investor or investor group contemplating owning of the company? The valuation is set, I think, more by market valuations of other companies that they can invest in that are at the same stage um, than it is like, you know, what is your actual revenue or EBITDA growth or profitability, anything like that. So it's it's a little bit more market driven. So in a market driven environment, from my perspective, it's let's raise as much as we can while not you know giving away the ship. We want to make sure that we maintain ownership of the business and we're not getting over, overly diluted. When it came to later stage rounds, it was much more tied towards what is your growth plan? How far do you think you can take this business? What does profitability look like and what is that point, um, et cetera. And, you know, we're much more in that realm now. Now the business is profitable, so we don't need capital, which is great. But and it, I will also say it required a lot of capital because this is a pretty capital intensive business. If you want to grow it at the rate that we were growing or are growing, um, you have to like at this point, we now own tons of inventory. We have two huge facilities, a lot of technology. Um, we've had to develop ourselves to really power this business. There's not a lot of off-the-shelf technology. And so we've raised close to 70 million to date. Um, and I just think to get the business to scale and to profitability requires um, requires a lot of capital here. So talk to me a little bit. I know that you acquired Mark. Why did you make, why did you acquire the company? Um, wh- why was it interesting to you? The business, as I said earlier, is now profitable, which is great. We're still growing the rental business and thinking about how do we expand. Um, And we were looking at a bunch of different categories to potentially either build our own uh, additional brand or acquire a brand. And we looked at this market for primarily men's wedding bands, which will eventually uh, grow into other men's jewelry options as well. But when we were looking at men's wedding bands, we're like, this is a really interesting category. Uh, it had a lot of similarities to the Black Tux when we first started it, given that it's a very fragmented market. Like if you're going to buy a band for your wedding, um, most people didn't know where to go. You're either going to like a local jeweler or Amazon in a lot of cases, or the online players are typically women's brands that are carrying men's wedding bands almost as an afterthought. So they're not really focused on a brand that's catering towards um, men for this. And because all of our customers or the majority are coming to us for a wedding, a lot of them have that need. And so we thought, okay, what a really interesting category where we could probably um, create or buy this brand and cross pollinate it with the Black Ducks customer um, to drive sales and drive growth and hopefully kind of create a brand in the space where there isn't, I would say, like many household names. Um, so we looked at the market as we, ha- as we you know, kind of decided whether we're going to build or buy something. And we found Mark and the team at Mark just had very similar values to us. It was started by a family in New York who had a lot of experience in the jewelry industry. Um, And I just really got along with the three kids who were running the business and their team. And so we felt like, hey, this is the perfect uh, business for us because they have the product know-how, they have decades of experience, understanding different metals, how things are made, where to make them. What does the customer want, not want, et cetera? We didn't know any of that. And that team knew that, but we could apply some of the learnings we had through starting an e-commerce business, through branding, um, through email marketing, all the different things that we 
have learned to do well over time. So it was kind of like the perfect combination of efforts. Um, so we acquired them late last year. We're actually still in the process of doing um, some work on the business. We're going to relaunch and rebrand parts of it um, at the end of next month, um, which is exciting. And then we'll probably offer more products over time as well. Um, but being really focused on kind of like men's wedding bands and jewelry is an area of the market that I'm really interested in. Yeah, that is that is interesting. I mean, I think about um, I got married a few years ago, and when I think about um, where I bought my wedding band, it was from the same place that you know I bought. Um, my wife's engagement ring and um and then you get kind of a discount um from getting um the wedding the the wedding bands on both sides so um um or the wedding it's it's the wedding ring for the for the wife and then it's the wedding band for the group is that right or they both call wedding bands okay so it's engagement ring which is the only one that typically your wife will only have and then you each have a wedding band and then we each have a wedding band okay cool okay cool okay cool. Yeah. no no and often they are bought in tandem as you're saying and a lot of people based on the surveys and kind of like the customer research we did, they were saying a similar thing to you that they were like, look, I, I didn't know where to go for this. I knew I needed to one. So I went to the place where I got my engagement ring. But when posed with the question, there was like a brand that really spoke to you, focused on this, had a similar home try on experience. We could try on a bunch of wedding bands at home. Would you be interested in that? A lot of people were um, giving us some enthusiastic support. And so that was a big reason why we wanted to do this. I'm excited for that that integration. That sounds great. What has been some of the growing pains? I know I I know we've talked about all like, all of like the great things that that have happened and, and and of course on the horizon, which is great. Um, like like Mark, which is which is fantastic. What has been also like some of the growing pains? Um, I know that for example, like operationally, like the like it's a pretty capital intensive business. I'd imagine that, that there's probably grow, growing pains on the operation side. Um, but overall, like when you think about like the growth on the sales side and, 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 and expansion, what does that look like? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's continuing to offer a good service so that the business spreads word of mouth. Like a lot of our growth is driven by repeat users and by users telling other people. Um, obviously we now have a mark, maybe it's not obvious, but we now have a marketing budget also. So figuring out how to deploy that, excuse me, into capital efficient channels where we can reach our customer. One of the challenges with the business is that um, the customer is fairly niche. It's harder to do really broad marketing strategies because you're either in market for this or you're not. You can't create demand out of thin air can with, you know, maybe selling a pair of jeans or a t-shirt or something like that. So we have to really be smart about where do we think the customer will be in market? Where are they showing some intent or showing that they're potentially engaged or potentially going to an event or a wedding? Um, and we've been able to figure out a lot of channels to do so, but that's one of the challenges in scaling on the sales side. But our philosophy is, first and foremost, always focus on the customer experience, focus on um, delivering on our promise operationally and from a brand perspective, and um, hoping that we'll continue to get some word of mouth growth because of that. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. What is one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I read a lot. I actually study English grad. I didn't study anything that was like business related, ironically, because I love doing this now. But there's a business book that is so most of them to me are about team building, because I think um, I can't really take credit for much in terms of like the success of this business other than putting together a good team. Like I've always had really good people next to me from the early days when we had an amazing creative team. Um, an amazing marketing team, operations team. And we've seen like 
people come in out of the business at different stages, but at every stage I've just had like phenomenal support to help this thing actually come to fruition. So the books I've liked, one is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. It's like a famous book. It's sort of about like the psychology of the workforce and um, teamwork and how to get teams to work better together. So on a professional side, I think that book is really great um, and really helps you think about how to create like a low ego culture that's more about getting things done and about, you know, communicating openly and honestly with one another in the workplace. So that's one. Um, On a personal side, I mean, the books that inspire me are like kind of classic uh, pieces of literature. I like, I love reading this book that I read many times called the brothers Karamazov. It's a Russian novel. Um, it doesn't have any like insights into business. It just has deep insights into life and what it means to be human and what it's like to be alive. And so I, I find that book really inspiring. That's awesome. Um, I'm definitely going to mark that. I don't think we've had, um, anyone bring up the brother, the brothers Karamazov. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's written by Dostoevsky. Not surprising because again, it's not really like a business book, but it, it has inspired me personally in a lot of areas of my life. No, we, 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 um, I, I've had on a venture capitalist that said, I don't read anything business. I only read poetry. And, and she listed off like a few, um, a few poetry. So yeah, I need to meet um, that person. Um, That's definitely more. <laughs> You're like, seen. I You're probably would have said something by Mary Oliver or some, uh, interesting poet, but I didn't want to get too out there. No, no, no. All good. All good. Andrew, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, it's been great. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Andrew. Andrew, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you all listening. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So now, do you have to be an a, uh, accredited investor in order to start um, angel investing or or if you're interested in, in setting up an account on Bobin? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. So if you want to be a lead deal maker uh, who you know has on one side deal flow, on the other side, a network of investors, and you're kind of merging those two together using an SPV, you don't necessarily need to be an accredited investor. Anyone can, you know, create a deal. Uh, if you are investing into, you know, uh, a high risky venture capital investment, you do have to be an accredited investor. Uh, and this is predominantly due to, uh, you know, protection by the regulators to protect, you know, a retail investor investing a large portion of their net worth into a, a very risky asset. Um, and so, yeah, um, accredited investors in the U.S. is roughly anyone who earns more than 250K on an annual basis or have, you know, a net worth of over a million dollars. Yeah, no, that, no, that's helpful. So if you did want to um, experience, um, you know, get involved and in, in diversifying your asset pool in terms of what you invest in and and, and, and think that alternative investment startups might be um, interesting to you, even if you're not accredited, um, you could actually start doing SPVs if you wanted to, if you're kind of the lead deal maker and actually pool um, all the money together. Is that is is that roughly right? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people in the VC ecosystem uh, who has, on one hand, access to deal flow, and on the other hand, uh, you know, access to a bunch of net uh, investors. Um, you know, an SPV works extremely well trying to bridge those two together. So we have clients who are, you know, ex 
operators or ex-entrepreneurs who've worked in the industry for quite some time, built out their network, built out, you know, their founder communities and things like that, um, and want to, you know, monetize off some of the deal flow that they, they have in hand. Again, if you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to the Consumer VC newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the deals that are happening. Thanks for listening.